And you know, Patrick and me, we founded the company and, and we have our own uh, pre-mediation sessions as well. So twice a year, we look each other in the eye and we ask the people around us, hey, are we still the right people to lead this company? Because, you know, it's one thing to manage two people. It's another thing to manage 10. Uh, it's more difficult to, to hire 50. And then if you're now moving up to the hundreds of people, I mean, it's, it requires a different management style and it's not for everybody. You're listening to People Building Businesses, the podcast from YBF Ventures. My name is Jason Lim. I'm the Chief of Staff here at YBF. As well as being your host, I'm part of the YBF team. We're an innovation hub here in Melbourne and Sydney, and our mission is to help startups to scale, scale-ups to succeed, and corporates to innovate in their own right. And for all, all the listeners out there, you can uh, find out more at ybfventures.com. Our guest today is really special. Um, our guest today is Startup Bootcamp co-founder, Ruth Hendricks. Startup Bootcamp is a network of industry-focused startup accelerators that supports early-stage tech founders to rapidly scale their companies by providing direct access to an international network of the most relevant mentors, partners, and investors in their industry. Uh, SBC is also a partner and member of YBF Ventures. So we've partnered with SBC uh, and the Victoria State Government to launch a fintech accelerator program here in Melbourne. And we've been fortunate enough to host two energy tech cohorts now in YBF with some very, very impressive companies, people like Redgrid, WePower, oh, there's so many others to, to think of. Um, and they've raised millions of dollars as well, which is an amazing feat. Root himself has a pretty amazing career with decades and decades of experience in all sorts of media endeavors. Before moving into the world of startups with SBC and his other companies, um, I could try to summarize it all now, but I'm afraid I won't do Root any justice. So let's get into the chat. Root, welcome to the podcast. Great to have you here. Thank you, Jason. Good to be here. You've done some incredible things in your life, but it all kind of has to start somewhere. So maybe to kick things off, tell us a bit about your background and where you grew up. I mean, you mentioned before the podcast that you grew up in a pretty poor family. So maybe yes. that's a good starting point. Yes. my Yeah, I, I come from a relatively poor uh, family background. Not that anybody was hungry, but, uh, you know, the first time I traveled outside the Netherlands, I was 17 years of age. Uh, this was also the first time I ever uh, walked into a plane. And, uh, you know, a number of years ago, I was uh, uh, KLM's uh, most uh, frequent flyer. So, I mean, yeah, wow. quite a lot <laughs> happened uh, there. Uh, I started my first uh, company at the age of um, 16, I think. Uh, was a land-based uh, commercial pirate radio station uh, because commercial radio was uh, prohibited in those days. Um, and it was very interesting because we 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 were uh, broadcasting, and obviously at a certain moment uh, the authorities didn't appreciate that, and they uh, <laughs> they came and they they um, basically uh, took us off the air, and then we decided to put the transmitter on one side of town and have another small transmitter broadcasting on a very irregular frequency, so we had a studio on one side of town and a big transmitter on the other side of town, so when the authorities would seize uh, the main transmitter, we could still keep our studio equipment. At a certain moment, the station became extremely popular, and at a certain moment, uh, the raids that the police and the, and, uh, and, and the authorities did became extremely frequent every few days. And then there was an unused big old uh, coal um, uh, exhaust pipe, over 100 meters large, in town. And what we did uh, during the night is we asked um, some alpinists to climb into that tower, put big transmitters on the tower. Uh, we then put a, 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 a big uh, antennas on the tower, put a big transmitter downstairs, and we, uh, we, we, we closed the tower with concrete. So it was all uh, plastered. So when the authorities, and then we started broadcasting, and you could hear the station basically in 40% of the country. And uh, then the authorities uh, came, and they, they looked at that tower, and they couldn't find any way to, to enter the tower. <laughs> the, the big antennas were on top of the tower. And it took them six weeks to get us off the air. And when they finally uh, were able to climb to those antennas, we had put a bucket uh, up there with two glasses, a bucket, a, a bottle of champagne uh, in there, and we said, congratulations, you finally <laughs> got us. And the moment they took us off the air, we switched on another transmitter on the other side of town. So that's how I started my career. 
Yeah, but at a certain moment, I mean, the rates just became too frequent, and uh, and I became a radio DJ on board a pirate radio ship, uh, moored of the uh, uh, in the in the Thames Estuary, about uh, 16 miles outside territorial waters in the UK. Like real pirate ship. A real pirate ship wow. with a big tower on it, and the uh, station was called Radio Caroline, a legendary pirate radio station, which, by the way, is still on air nowadays as an online uh, station. And uh, I spent about two years on the high seas, uh, broadcasting three months off the ship and then being back on land, smuggled into the country on fishing boats and, and even on the Rainbow Warrior, the, 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 the former uh, Greenpeace uh, ship, uh, back on land for a few weeks and then back, back to the radio ship again. So that's how I started my career. And then uh, around the age of 20, I, I landed my first uh, legal job in broadcasting uh, <laughs> and I, I became a... A radio reporter, a TV reporter, uh, a news anchor, and well, that's how things came about. And then uh, I'm 60 years of age now. Ten years ago, uh, I really decided that I had enough of, of media and broadcasting. Uh, you know, you saw Netflix, Spotify disrupting the industry. And together with uh, my um, my good friend and partner uh, Patrick De uh, we launched the Startup Bootcamp, which was great. Have you ever thought about? creating a movie about your life it sounds like a perfect kind no, of <laughs> no 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 it's not uh, no no i mean there was a great movie about those pirate days made oh. uh, which was called uh, the boat that rocked okay uh, can everybody advise to it's slightly romanticized but uh, it gives a nice picture about the situation we had on board. accurate yeah. depiction of yeah yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely yeah. yeah absolutely just uh, look it up where did the rebellious street come from because you know it, it sounds like you at a very early age decided that you wanted to create this company to sort of I don't know, like challenge authority or something like that. Yeah. Where, where did it come from at such a young age? Well, uh, because I come from a re relatively poor family background, I decided to uh, find my way out of, let's say, my social environment. Uh, I'm not looking down at my parents. All the I, I really admire them. Uh, but um, I decided that I wanted to, to, to move ahead. And I've always been slightly different. So mm -hmm. uh, later during my life, I became a supervisory board member of a bank, for instance. <laughs> And I had many supervisory board uh, positions, but I was always asked to be a member of those boards because I was different. So I've always been slightly rebellious, uh, and it's just it's just in my veins, uh, you know. It's it's always great to challenge uh, things, and it has made me uh, very successful. But I've also had big big failures in my life as well. Uh, I once launched a a low pay TV sports uh, TV channel, which became the biggest failure in my career. And the shareholders altogether lost about, let me try and do this in Australian dollars, uh, about um, something like 65, 70 million Australian wow. uh, dollars. Do I do this right? No, sorry, even more, 130 even million uh, Australian dollars. So that was a, a big, big uh, loss. And uh, I, I had to pay quite a bit of that myself. So it's not just been a success story. Yeah, it's yeah. ups and downs. Absolutely, it's it's you know being an entrepreneur means going from deep despair to huge euphoria, and, and you you really live through all the emotions in between. That that's part of life. How do you deal with that? Well, you just have to accept that if if you if you if you want to be an entrepreneur, you have to take a certain risk. And um, I took major risk, and I had major failures, and fortunately, I was able to to earn a lot of money back. Um, and you get o older and a little wiser over the years. And uh, I prefer to talk about my failures because people can learn way more from my failures than from my successes. And, and one of the great things about being 60 years of age is that nowadays I can, I can literally um, um, tell about my experiences in podcasts like these, et cetera, and that's a great thrill. Yeah, awesome. So we'll jump back into that later on, but uh, you know, you've know, you had a lot of roles in, in media um, in your early days. Yeah. You've even become, uh, in the past, managing director of NBC Europe, uh, program director at RTL Netherlands. Before that, could you summarize your experience in the media industry? Well, I, I've launched the first two commercial radio stations in the Netherlands, yep. uh, the first two legal uh, radio stations. And because broadcasting uh, commercial radio in the Netherlands was illegal, uh, I found a loophole in the law. So um, there's European legislation which basically says that if something is legal uh, as a product in one country, that you have to be able to sell it in another country as well. So commercial radio was legal in the UK. It was legal in, in Luxembourg. 
so we started up radio stations in those countries, uh, beaming into the Netherlands, and and w- those stations were distributed via cable. Uh, and as a result, we were able to to reach I- initially about forty percent of the population. And uh, after broadcasting for two years and and noticing that those stations couldn't be closed down by the authorities, I thought, well, if this works for radio, then it should work for TV as well. So uh, I was happy to, to t- with with three other people to launch uh, the first two commercial TV stations in the Netherlands. And you know, it's great if you're the first. I mean, you you are a monopolist, uh, mm. which so we 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 uh, really conquered the market extremely fast. I mean, within half a year, we had over one third of all viewing uh, time uh, in the country and after doing that for a few years i suggested to my shareholders to launch a third station and they said no the market isn't ready yet and then i just got an offer i couldn't refuse from uh, from nbc uh, to manage nbc europe which later uh, i i turned into cnbc hmm. so um, was yeah. it a very different experience for you being the, the founder of all these radio stations and being a bit of a rogue in the industry and then suddenly going to manage what is a very in your what's legal <laughs> yeah and big and established radio company was that a big change for you um not not really i uh, mind you i it, it's not uh, i i didn't try to i i wasn't a pirate because i liked it uh yeah there is of course there's the thrill of doing something which is just slightly outside the law but uh, the only reason i was a pirate broadcaster was because there were no legal means mm. to do commercial radio uh, in, in in my home country but uh, once those uh, uh, stations were uh, legalized, I-, I was happy that I could just walk the streets and, and be very open about it. <laughs> yeah. So it's a long time ago now, and uh, so I, I, I so I, it was great to be part of the uh, to launch CNBC Europe and to be part of, uh, of of NBC, which in those days was part of uh, uh, and owned by General Electric. So it gave me the opportunity to be uh, pretty close to uh, Jack Welch, uh, mm. who was then the famous CEO of uh, General Electric, which in those days was the largest company in the world and the most valuable company in the world and i learned a lot from uh, from him and uh, my family wasn't really happy living in london uh, so i moved back to the netherlands and then i was asked by john de mol and Joop van der ende two great entrepreneurs to uh, join uh, the board of endemol and there may be a few australian listeners who um, who have heard of that company but if i mention big brother the tv program yeah uh, which has become part a, of your career a huge uh, hit and um, so, um, uh, and Animal became the largest independent TV producer in the world because mainly of that program, mm. which was uh, created by John de Mol, uh, one of the founders of the of the of, of the company. And we then took Animal public, and it was sold about five six years later to Telefonica from Spain for five point seven billion in two thousand and two, uh, hundred and fifty eight times earnings, which was great wow. because it made me really financially. Independent, independent, yeah, yeah, independent, and um, so that was a thrill. Yeah. yeah. So, what was your personal involvement in the whole Big Brother thing? Were you involved with the team that? Well, it? we, uh, well, the original idea was created by John Amol and yep. uh, and Paul Romer, another guy, uh, but uh, there was no online business model there. And together with one of my other colleagues, a guy named John van der Putte, uh, who deserves all the credits for that, we developed uh, a business model for the online part so in those days um, you had internet providers and there was one internet provider who which was really a challenge challenger in in europe uh, called world online and they were willing to pay us uh, a few bucks per uh, subscriber that was eager to see uh, let's say what was happening inside the big brother house outside the regular broadcasting hours so you would see let's say the compilation of whatever happened in the last 24 hours uh, on, on regular TV, but the other 23 hours you could watch live online if you became a subscriber. And we made an awful a lot of money out of that. I mean, we were by far the, the most profitable internet company uh, in Europe uh, during 1999 because of that uh, program, which is interesting because actually Animal in those days was a really conservative uh, old-fashioned TV producer. And, it just, and then moving into the online world was such a thrill. And you know, I've I've always been uh, a very early adapter. Uh, I um, I had been um, a subscriber to CompuServe, which was kind of a walled garden version of the internet in I think in 1985 already. Wow. So this was really the early days of the internet, and then the internet opened up, and I always saw the potential. I always urged my 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 
uh, fellow uh, board members uh, in the companies where I worked to really push uh, for the internet, but it was hard in the traditional TV industry. Mm. Uh, so after leaving uh, the media industry, uh, it was great to start start a bootcamp and to really accelerate uh, internet companies. And we've done over 900 companies thus far around oh. the globe, which was great. Yeah. So where did inspiration for Start Bootcamp come from? You mentioned that, was it a shift in internet or was it something else? Or? No, um, I, I had been very fortunate that uh, uh, Patrick De Zeeuw, uh, my now my co-founder in Start Bootcamp, reported to me at Animal for about uh, ah, eight, eight years. And when I celebrated my 50th birthday, um, my wife said to me, listen, it's time to do something else. If you ever want to do something else in your life, this is the moment because you're 50, you have the network, you got the money, you got the, the energy. So if you want to do something else, this is it. And Patrick heard us saying that and he said, listen, uh, why don't we start a new company together? I said, well, what are we going to do? He said, well, what's the most fun you've ever had in your career? I said, well, the most fun I've ever had is launching new companies. He said, well, why don't we start a company to help other companies launch? Mm. And I said, that's a great idea. Uh, and, and then I didn't hear anything from him for three weeks. <laughs> and then he gave me a call. He said, listen, uh, we're about to go to New York together. I said, why? He said, well, there's a company there called Techstars. And these guys are doing precisely what you want to do. Uh, they're launching new companies all the time. They are an accelerator. So we went over to New York and we spent a week at Techstars. And at the end of the week, we said, uh, listen, guys, we would like to license your format uh, for Amsterdam uh, in, in, in the Netherlands. And they said, well, that's impossible because we all already licensed the format to start a bootcamp in Copenhagen. I said, but Amsterdam is the Netherlands and Copenhagen is Denmark. And they said, well, that may be the case, but nevertheless, we licensed it already. But these Danish guys are really great people. Why don't you give them a call and see if you can cooperate? So we flew from New York to Denmark, to Copenhagen. We spent a week with uh, the Danish guys, and they said, listen, we haven't started yet. Uh, why don't you start start a bootcamp Amsterdam, and we'll start start a bootcamp Copenhagen. We create a holding company in London, uh, start a bootcamp uh, Global LTD, and we'll just do this together, because Patrick and me had the experience of scaling from a few countries to, to over 20 countries with uh, with the TV production company, with Endemol. And uh, and there was only one condition. They said the name has already been set. It started Bootcamp, yeah. which is a strange name because it's misspelled all the time by, by uh, non-native <laughs> English uh, speakers, etc. But that was effect of life. So that's how we launched. And uh, after launching, uh, my co-founder, Patrick, really improved the Techstars format in a tremendous way. For instance, we added pre-mediation, uh, you know, a major reason why startups fail is internal team quarrels. So we ask our team members to sit down at least once a month to talk to a pre-mediator, not to solve issues, but to make certain they do not arise. It's just an example. And Techstars were so impressed with the improvements that we made that they said, listen, can we license your improvements? Wow. And we said, well, you know, why don't you use our improvements and we use your original format and we just do this without any money going up and down anymore. And they agreed to that, which was great. Uh, so we were one of the, I would say, first four or five accelerators in the world using this format, which has the, since then been copied by thousands and thousands of other accelerators. And yeah. for the listeners who aren't familiar with the format that you're describing, could yeah. you just quickly package it up? Yeah, basically, uh, we... we um, give startup founders uh, one and a half years of their life back because we uh, uh, let them do in three months what would otherwise take them one and a half to two years. And so uh, we we uh, have a program where people can apply for. We only have 10 uh, uh, startups per program batch, but usually we get 700 to 1,000 applications. Um, and once those 10 startups are in, we connect them to our large net uh, mentor network. We got thousands of mentors around the globe, and they pick five lead mentors who help them to grow in a tremendous way. Um, and we have a, 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 a network of about 200 corporate enterprises that we can immediately connect them with. So if one of our startups says, hey, I want to be in touch with a person at Energy Australia, we say, okay, you speak you speak to Anthony Wiseman at en Energy Australia, and he can immediately uh, direct you to the right person at Energy Australia. So where usually it would take them months to find the right person in a corporate uh, partner, we can do this within 24 hours. And so when they are 
in our accelerator program, they spend about 20 to 25% of their time going through a curriculum where they, uh, where we teach them how to pitch to uh, uh, investors, where we teach them the lean startup methodology, uh, things like that. And they work on their uh, company for about 75% of their time. Then after three months, we have a demo day and they pitch to a room filled with hundreds of investors. And that's where they usually pick up substantial amount of money uh, from half a million to a million uh, Australian dollars uh, on average and uh, and we take it from there and our business model is that we ask for 8% of their shares of right. their equity um, and we have income from our corporate partners so that's our business model okay any uh, any companies you're particularly proud of uh, well, many, many <laughs> companies. One that I would really like to mention is a company named Mpost. Uh, this is a, a company from our Africatech uh, okay. program. Uh, they were accelerated by us in Cape Town. And, you know, in Africa, many people don't have a regular postal address. And if you want to have access to, let's say, social security or things like that, you need an address. So in Kenya, uh, Mpost uh, created a, uh, a situation where if you have a mobile phone number, that mobile phone number serves as your address, your postal address. Oh. So um, 32 million people now subscribe to Mpost in Kenya. And as a result, they have access to banking facilities, to social security, things like that. You may have heard of a company named Mpesa, which is a... Uh, uh, let's say a micro uh, loan and payment provider yep. in Kenya and nowadays you can only become an Mpesa uh, member if you have an Mpost address so these guys have built a very valuable company but in the meantime they've really solved a key social issue as well so they've improved the world it's not something that you and I don't have to use it you're, you're, you're fortunate enough to live in, in a great town like Melbourne and I'm fortunate enough to spend most of my life in Amsterdam but uh, this is really a third world issue which has been solved by one of our uh, uh, companies, which is really fantastic. Yeah, so, and you've uh, got another company um, that just came through a fintech accelerator program here doing micro lending in Myanmar as well, Zigway. Yeah, yeah. yeah, so it seems like it's, you know, you're not just investing in things that are necessarily extremely profitable, but also things that have a social Absolutely. good cause. Absolutely, and we're currently working on a global uh, SDG accelerator, the, the social development goals of uh, okay. United Nations. So it's not, ju not just about the money. Yeah. Although I should emphasize we are a commercial company. And um, everybody knows us from Startup Bootcamp, but we have a second brand as well, all part of the same group called Innoleaps. Mm. And in Innoleaps, we do corporate uh, acceleration. So um, like we do startups with Startup Bootcamp, we do corporate teams in Innoleaps. And Innoleaps actually is twice as large as Startup Bootcamp, but very wow. few people realize. Yeah, yeah, I didn't realize that. Yeah. Awesome. yeah. How do you yeah. balance that, that uh, social cause and profitability? Sometimes they're... Well, they can go together uh, very, very well. Yeah. Uh, you know, um, it's. I, I mean, it's not our. Um, our main objective is to build a stable company. We have a, a, a huge social responsibility ourselves because we employ hundreds of people, mm. and uh, so that's important. But it's great if you can combine uh, commercial activities with a social impact element uh, as well. And mind you, not all of our companies have that social impact uh, element. Uh, yeah. We did another company. This is interesting. Many, many, many people think that uh, most of our startups are 18-year-old uh, guys running around in T-shirts. First, I'd say that uh, uh, over 40% of our startups are female. Amazing. Uh, yeah, uh, of our founders. Uh, but uh, the average age of the startups going through our program is 36 years of age. And our most successful team ever were, uh, was built by, uh, our, th that company was built by four guys who walked in, each of them 52 years of age and older, uh, three Germans, one American guy, and they started a company named Relayer. And this is an IoT company, so they create, let's say, sensors, uh, which, which, which you can put, for instance, in an elevator, and they will uh, automatically let you know when uh, it's time to maintain and to do maintenance on the elevator. And um, these guys came to us and they said, we know how to build a product. We've been working together for many, many years in a corporate world, but we don't know how to create a company. So if you help us to create a company, we'll create a product and, and we'll be very successful. So that's what we did. And these guys uh, sold the company a year ago after almost five years of, um, 
of, of after the start, and they sold the company for three hundred million dollars. Wow! And we still own about one point four percent in the company, so you can do the math. That's incredible. Yeah. So and we invested fifteen thousand euros, and we we so we made a lot of money out of that, which is great. It doesn't happen. I mean, that's not what always happens. I mean, yeah. obviously there are startups not uh, making it either, and uh, but approximately seventy-five um, uh, percent uh, of our companies. Uh, becomes four years of age or older. So our yep. survival rate is pretty high. And that's a good segue to the next question. How do you pick the people that you bring into your accelerator? There's all this bias and misconception. And like you said, you know, people think that startups are just 18-year-olds in, in T-shirts. How do, how do you select people to go through? Yeah, this is by far the most important uh, thing we're, we're doing uh, because many people think we are just looking at ideas and then we pick the most interesting one. But to be very honest, we see about 20,000 new ideas per year. And, and most of them we've already seen in one or another way. And uh, to be very honest again, we don't care too much about the idea. We, we look at the team first and foremost, um, because a great team can create something nice out of a bad idea, but a bad team will destroy any superb idea. So um, we really look at the team. So we have very strict criteria. So we always want teams that exist uh, consist uh, of at least three people. Uh, we uh, would like those three t people to have complementary skills. Uh, we ask them to do a psychological test, and we can't say that if you have a certain psychological mm. profile that your company will become a success, but we know for certain that if you miss certain elements in your profile, you will never be able to build a successful company. So the psychological test is a really important element, and finally, we have this pre-mediation thing to make certain that there are no team quarrels, be because you know, uh, three people start a company and say, oh, we're going to do this 24-7, we're really going to create a great company out of this. And then one of them says, well, unfortunately, my mother-in-law is ill. I have to take care of the kids today. And the next day, uh, something else happens. And the other two are putting in all they got. And one person drops out. And then tensions start to arise. And then there's a team blow up at the end. So we do everything. You know, investing in startups is really, I mean, uh, tricky. Uh, it, it's it, it's uh, risky. But we do everything we can to avoid any risk uh, uh, as, as much as possible. Right, and people yeah. think that investing is necessarily risky, but it sounds like you've developed a framework to, to de-risk that process. Yes, yes, but still, you know, uh, if we have a batch of 10 startups, two may be very, very good and have mm -hmm. exceptional returns, and there are probably four or five who are doing okay, and, and some will go down, that's, that's life. How do you manage the cohort in that case when you see clear winners and you know, companies that are clearly lagging behind. Do you invest more in the winners or do you help those companies that are dragging behind? Or? You know, the winners usually uh, don't need a lot of help. Uh, the company I just mentioned, Relayer, yep. uh, we helped them pretty intense uh, during the first three to six months. And afterwards they went on, out on their own and we heard very little from them other than the usual reporting that you, you, you would expect as a shareholder. But the companies that are lagging behind, those are the ones that require most of the energy. And uh, basically they can ask for help 24-7, uh, 365 days a year, under one condition that they tell us how things are going. Because many uh, startup founders are so busy trying to find investors and trying to find clients that they forget to report to their shareholders. Right. And even though we tell them during the program, you have to report, you have to communicate, and you have to be very transparent. So don't just tell us the good news, tell us the bad news as well. Then things come up, they're busy and they think, oh, I have now the choice between talking to a client or reporting to my shareholders and they choose the client. And then at a certain moment, if we haven't heard from them for a while and they ask us for help, we say, sorry, we are yeah. not going to help you because you haven't reported. So please tell us how you're doing. And afterwards, we may be willing to help you. Yeah. But the good ones, you know, are very transparent and tell us the good news and the bad news and and they can really call us 24 7 and we will help them yeah sure uh, have you noticed traits in founders that are successful maybe maybe you could highlight three or four traits that you see yeah absolutely well uh, in any uh successful team you need 
driven people. You want people who are so passionate, they're willing to eat this table that we're sitting at <laughs> in order to create the best company in the world. Uh, without drive, without passion, it's impossible to create a great company. Um, secondly, it's nice if there's someone in there who's structured because of the reporting, because of the admin and everything that comes with it. Thirdly, it's nice if there's someone who can develop software um, and who knows something about the industry. And it doesn't all have to be in one person, maybe in three persons or in a, in a larger team, but those are the elements we're looking for. And then, of course, complementary skills, and it helps if you have a bit of experience. Uh, we don't care about religion. We don't care about uh, nationality. We don't care about age. Uh, but those are the things we're looking for. And as long as you don't harm anybody else with your opinions or your beliefs, you're welcome. And what about your hundreds of employees in SBC? Do they go through the same process that the founders go through? Yes, yes. Uh, all our uh, employees have done the psychological <laughs> test. Uh, yep. You know, we are growing pretty fast ourselves. We grow about 40% this year. Wow. So um, what I try to do is to talk to as many people in the company as I can. Uh, so we employ about 100 people in Amsterdam. I have spoken to at least 95 of them and I try to keep up with that but you know I'm now in Australia for two weeks and then I'll take a short break so in January I'll probably have to sit down for a full day and talk to those uh, people uh, I try to say I'm, I'm now in Melbourne for two weeks I try to talk to as many people as we have here because maintaining the culture and facilitating our own managers that's that's our key role you start a company and you uh, in the beginning you manage the company and you manage the people and you control the people but at a certain moment you have to move from controlling people to trusting people to facilitating people and that's that's where we currently are yeah i think it's a, it's a dream for a lot of companies to be able to build you know a hundred plus person organization let alone a, a company that's in i think 17 cities across mm -hmm. the globe yeah uh, you mentioned some of them cape town amsterdam melbourne New York, yeah, Mexico, Milan, uh, yeah, we love apparently we love cities with an M: Milan, Melbourne, Mexico, yeah, that's a good point, Mumbai. Uh, <laughs> that's just a coincidence. We're looking at Singapore now, Lausanne okay. in Switzerland. Yeah. yeah. How yeah. do you do that? How do you how do you grow so quickly? Well, we've done it before. Uh, the trick is to first um, uh, create a stable uh, HQ, a stable. Uh, home office to operate from. So once you've 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 literally found product market fit, so you really have a product that, and and you've you've you're certain that there's a need for that product in the market. That's when you are able to scale. Um, and what you do is you always start with finding the right people. Once again, this is a people's business. So before we moved into Melbourne, we made certain that we found uh, Trevor Townsend and yep. Richard Selm, two amazing guys, who are uh, running our operations uh, here. And when we um, decided to move into uh, Melbourne, uh, we first sat down and said, listen, this is who we are. This is our culture. And so we don't talk about the business. We start talking about our culture, which is really the company is built on trust. Um, so we try to create a very safe environment where people can criticize each other, not to hurt each other, but to make each other better. So once you've established that situation, then you can say, okay, these are our products, now let's try and sell them. And we were very fortunate that uh, Energy Australia was our, uh, our launching customer uh, in, in Melbourne. And uh, we've, we've had a great relation with them ever since, uh, since then. So on one hand, we follow our clients, uh, so if they demand us, if they, if we now got three clients that want us to start up in in Singapore, mm. so that's great. So we we literally hit the ground running, um, uh, and and but you also have to be very careful not to move into countries that may seem to be very attractive, but actually where the market is just too small. To give you an example, we could launch a company in Norway, and Norway has two uh, two million uh, citizens. Mm. Uh, it it requires as much energy to start up in. In, in Norway as it requires to start up in, let's say, Germany. So you'd rather use that energy to start up in Germany with 80 million uh, uh, citizens than to do it in, in Norway. There are certain countries where we don't want to be active. Uh, yeah. Saudi Arabia, you know, uh, a country which is discriminating half of yeah. its uh, population. We just don't, don't want to be there. We have our own f values and uh, we stick to them. Yeah, amazing. And, and how do you... Do you ever tweak your program based on the different cultures that you all see? All the time, all the time. Yeah. Well, uh, we have a main format, and but obviously uh, there are local um, 
situations that sometimes require you to be a little bit more flexible. But, you know, the great thing is we um, we have a strict format and we try to stick to it. I mean, we come from the TV industry, so, you know, you just don't... Uh, I mean, if you look at The Voice here in Australia, I bet the chairs are red because they're red all around the globe. Right. And, uh, and I'm, I bet that the Australian producer is not allowed to make them green because he just feels that green True. is a nicer color True. or yellow uh, here in Australia. Um, so um, we try to be pretty strict there as well. But for instance, we have a great team over here and they have now developed, for instance, an, an, an amazing tool uh, to rate the startups as part of our final selection days. And they've invented it over here and we're now rolling it out throughout all the other countries wow. as well. So uh, we, we give people enough freedom to be creative and to improve uh, things, but we love them to communicate with us. So, you know, communication is... Is key to scaling. It's very tempting to to roll out uh, throughout the world in a very fast way, but if people are not communicating anymore, things run out of hands. What does good communication look like? Good communication can only occur if you really trust each other. Um, so you have to be certain that you can criticize each other uh, because you want to improve the operation instead of criticizing someone because you want to hurt him or her. So building trust is, is key to everything we're doing. Uh, so uh, it's really hard to get into our company. Yeah. Uh, before we hire anybody, there are four talks with individual people. There's the psychological test we just uh, mentioned. So we hire very, very slow and we fire very, very fast if someone doesn't fit in. We have very few rules in the in the company. The main rule is just act and behave in the best interest of the company. Mm. So we don't tell people if they should fly business class to Sydney from Melbourne or tourist class. We don't tell them to fly business class to Amsterdam from Melbourne or tourist class. That's up to them. We would just like them to act like they founded their company themselves. We don't check their expense accounts. Uh, so, wow. so it's hard to get into our company, but once you're in, you fully trust it. But there is this... I would say, say social climate in the culture in the company where if you misbehave, you know, cert certain people start to feel that and and almost automatically you'll be you'll be pushed out. But you know, uh, as I said, every two years you you grow to a new level, and um, you, we, we're not hesitative to ask people to go uh, if they if we feel they're not up to that next uh, step. So you can make uh, a very good career pretty fast in our company, uh, but we're improving all the time. And if if you don't fit in anymore, well, then it's time to go. And you know, Patrick and me, we founded the company, and and we have our own uh, pre-mediation sessions as well. Okay. So twice a year, we look each other in the eye and we ask the people around us, "Hey, are we still the right people to lead this company?" Because, you know, it's one thing to manage. Two people. It's another thing to manage ten. Uh, it's more difficult to to hire fifty, and then if you're now moving up to the hundreds of people, I mean, it's it requires a different management style, and it's not for everybody. Yeah. I mean, there are very few people like Jeff Bezos who start who started on their own, and who are now managing uh, hundreds of thousands of uh, people. I mean, this week uh, Larry Page and Sergey Brin, step down, the co-founders of, of of Google, step down. Yeah, and I don't want to compare myself and Patrick with those guys. I mean, they're in a different league. But um, it's important to ask that question. And it's also very important that you got people uh, surrounding you who are able to say and who, who don't feel um, threatened if they say, uh, who aren't feeling scared to, to tell you, hey, dude, you're 60 years of age. You don't belong here anymore. And, and you know, I got gray hair. The average age of our people is way younger than I am. And I always say, them, "Listen, I don't want to be the laughing stock of the company." You know, please tell me if if my if if I'm um, uh, misusing and overusing my uh, my time. Yeah. yeah, it must yeah. be hard for a founder to be able to take that feedback on board and potentially let go of control of a company. Um, have you had any? startups in your companies that have had to bring in an external CEO or external management team? Uh, yeah. Uh, let's say the growing, it's just part of the growing pains. And every now and then I had to tell a founder and say, hey, you know, uh, apparently uh, you're a great founder, but not a great manager. Maybe it's time to hire someone else to manage uh, the company. And I, I sincerely hope that people are 
not scared to tell me that my time is 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 over. And you know, if if that's the moment, I'll be, uh, be I'll just be a shareholder in the company and I'll just yeah. start my next company because uh, there are still many ideas that I would like to uh, to build. Yeah, awesome. Um, Root, you're you're pretty famous in Australia for your annual. Um, you know, state of technology talks, and yeah. I've, I've been through a few of them myself yeah. as well. Um, I know you're giving one tomorrow at Start Grind Australia. Mm-hmm. Uh, sorry, not tomorrow on Monday. Yeah. Uh, but could you could you summarize for me your top three trends of what's yeah. happening? Well, in tech? The, the, some of the things we're seeing are, are pretty scary. First, we uh, think that the internet will be more become more and more nationalized. Uh, mm. I mean, we all know that in, in North Korea you can't access the internet, and we all know that in China you can't access uh, Facebook and Twitter without using VPNs and things like that. Um, but this is really becoming a trend. Uh, if if there's any social unrest in a certain country, there's a tendency that more and more countries and governments try. The first thing they do is shut the internet down to make certain that groups can't communicate uh, amongst each other anymore. You also see that when there's tension between countries, they they try to attack each other's uh, cyber facilities. So. This is pretty scary. I mean, we are so used to the internet as a medium where you can communicate from one side of the globe to the other side of the globe and share things and and be on social media. And, and, you know, for the foreseeable future, you and I, you from Melbourne, me from Amsterdam, will be able to communicate online as much as we want. But... Try communi- try being in China and try communicating with someone in uh, in Iran, for instance. Mm. That's pretty pretty hard, and I think it's extremely uh, scary and worrying that 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 this is happening. So we see a trend that the internet will become nationalized. That's our first prediction for the yeah. next eighteen months. Our second prediction is that um, the terminators are coming, uh, and what we mean is that uh, the military use of algorithms, of automation, of robots, is increasing all the time. I just mentioned cyber warfare, uh, but you also see that uh, robots and and, and uh, algorithms are becoming more and more important. We've seen drones flying over Afghanistan being operated and piloted from uh, the safe environment of, 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 uh, of an operator in Florida. Uh, but this, re- this is really extending not just to, let's say, drones, but also to the battlefield in itself, which has a good side because, I mean, you don't need soldiers on the battlefield anymore, but there are big, big risks uh, there as well. And our third prediction is that uh, hyper-reality is here to stay. Uh, we've all heard, heard of fake news. You know that it's uh, pretty easy to impersonate, uh, to really take a real picture of Barack Obama, to re- take his real voice and to manipulate it in such a way that you can let literally let him say anything you want, uh, and 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 it'll be very hard for someone else to realize that this is not the real Barack Obama, but s- someone misusing his voice and 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 looks. Uh, this happens with text now as well. So um, you c- there are algorithms that you can just give one sentence and the algorithm will create a full essay out of that and, and a pretty good one as well. And it happens with voice as well. So, I mean, um, there are situations where, for instance, in the UK, UK a CEO received a, a, a call on his voicemail with one of his colleagues asking him to transfer 250,000 euros to uh, an address in Hungary. And uh, he knew this colleague very, very well. So uh, he he he, uh, he transferred the money, and three calls later, he found out that it wasn't his colleague who had wow. called him, but someone misusing his colleague's voice. So the technical capabilities are there. Um, at the same time, you see that uh, augmented reality, mixed reality, virtual reality are probably slower than we originally expected, but are growing now. Uh, I think in 2022, Apple is announced uh, w- will introduce uh, augmented reality uh, glasses. So the real world and the virtual world are uh, becoming more and more intermingled and mixed. And uh, w- we think that trend it will not go away. So we have to be, as as consumers, we have to be very careful that mm. we have to verify who is the person speaking to you, even if you 
look at someone on TV. Is this the real person or is it someone else impersonating uh, him? Uh, but at the same time, especially a younger generation is so will become so used to using uh, augmented reality and virtual reality that it'll be hard to 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 see the difference between the real world and the hyper world. So so we think hyper reality is here to stay. Do you think this is a reflection of where technology is in its life cycle? Because at, at early days, you know, it's exuberance opportunity and and now it sounds like people are starting to wake up and go hey you know fake news or um hey you know cyber attacks and threats and you know is, is this an inflection point for tech or uh, well i think i think there is a reflection point you know right. uh, not if you look at tech in general um my, my feeling is that the more enthusiastic uh, let's say certain a certain group of people becomes about their smartphones and about everything going digital etc that there's a growing group as well that is saying, hey, let's wait and see. Uh, I mean, the, the the sales of dumb phones instead of smartphones is growing tremendously. There's a group of yeah. DJs preferring analog records to digital uh, music. There are people who prefer to read from paper instead of reading from from e-readers. Um, there is literally is the the slow tech movement movement is becoming more and more important. Uh, people who would like to listen to dialogues for three hours. I mean, the mere fact that we are now talking on a podcast is fantastic. You True. know. In, I mean, there's probably a small group of people interested in what we're saying, but that group is probably listen, listening pretty intensely. So there are always two sides to the equation, and I think this is indeed a very important reflection moment with the Internet becoming nationalized, with uh, tech being used in warfare, with... Uh, yeah, so so it's it's good. Take for instance so, uh, China's social credit system. You know, you get rewarded if you behave properly, and you get punished if you do misbehave. And and your behavior is controlled all the time by cameras all around uh, China. I think it's good that we wonder ourselves, hey, where are we heading with all this? Yeah, and and how? What are the opportunities for entrepreneurs in all of this, or how should entrepreneurs react? Well, you know, it has never been easier to start a company than today. Um, you don't need huge marketing budgets anymore to promote your company. You just use uh, social media. Everything has become way and way f uh, faster. So the opportunities are huge. But what I really like is that, uh, especially m amongst young people, starting entrepreneurs, there's uh, a huge tendency to think about what the impact of their activities will be on the globe. Obviously, there are people with dollar signs in their eyes. But uh, my feeling is that sustainability, for instance, becomes more and more important for young people. So they say, okay, we're gonna build a new company. And obviously it has to be sustainable from day one. Where in the past, sustainability was something special, something you could use to promote your company. Now it's, now it'll, it's, it's, it's the norm. So um, I, I'm really, really happy uh, to see that happening. At the same time, uh, we are operating in the tech industry mm -hmm. and we have to realize that um, the tech industry is using a lot of energy. Uh, to give you an example, uh, the Bitcoin, yeah. uh, you know, is using as much energy as the whole country of Austria in a year's time. Wow. So um, the, 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 the footprint uh, is, is, is just huge. And the more Bitcoins are being mined, the more energy it, it requires. I mean, if you buy a pizza, Using a Bitcoin here in Melbourne, uh, the uh, amount of energy that is spent is comparable to what a U.S. household is using in 20 days. Wow. And very, very few people realize that. Yeah. So that's something to bear in mind when you start your own company using the Bitcoin or blockchain uh, <laughs> yeah. technology. Yeah. Absolutely. And, and what's Start Bootcamp's role in responding to the state of tech? Well, I think we, um, we have to educate our people and, and to, to make people aware. Uh, many people think that because we are shareholders in 900 online startups that we only see the, the upside of the internet, but uh, we are very well aware that we are disrupting certain industries, uh, which means that people can become unemployed. And yeah. we try to respond to that by, we have a third leg to our organization called the Talent Institute, mm. where we take unemployed students or uh, university graduates, uh, mainly uh, people who have studied history or philosophy or psychology and we reskill them and we create uh, young digital innovators out of them or growth hackers or professions that didn't exist let's say six seven years uh, ago so we try to operate as responsible as possible uh, and and i'm not saying we're not making mistakes you know i'm here in melbourne i flew 
uh, I, I travel 27 hours to get here. Uh, and yeah. uh, my carbon footprint getting here is probably pretty big. But we are well aware of it. I mean, certain things are unavoidable. I just have to be here. I mean, we're building a commercial company, but we're uh, well aware of it. And we try to offset our carbon footprint ourselves. So like so like our, our demo days uh, are carbon neutral all around the globe. Yeah. yeah. And just quickly touching on the Talent Institute side of things. Um, if there are people out there listening to this podcast who are interested in Talent Institute, could you just summarize it for them and you know what's involved? Yeah, well, we do a couple of things at the Talent Institute. We, um, we as, as I mentioned, we are reskilling uh, university graduates. And uh, what we do is we uh, give them a one-month training where we teach them lots and lots of uh, different skills and then uh, they work with a client for four days a week and one uh, day a week they come back to our offices to get additional education and usually they do six month uh, stints at our clients uh, 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 offices so we we teach our corporate clients to to innovate but if they don't have the right people we can help them and and provide them with people as as well. And I I, I feel really privileged that uh, in the Netherlands uh, we we have helped uh, to get two twelve hundred people employed again who were unemployed, uh, bright talented people. So uh, we try to roll that out around the globe uh, as well. And uh, we've recently started about six eight months ago yep. uh, doing this in melbourne as well yep so it's r really exciting to see that uh, grow yeah awesome and we've definitely seen some really great people come through the town yeah too, yeah so. yeah yeah they're very bright people yeah, yeah. kudos yeah. to you know sbc for starting that thank you very much my pleasure really really <laughs> great but it's an honor to be able to do that. i'm serious uh, yeah. to do that absolutely one last question before we wrap up uh looking throughout you know your entire career you know, where you started out from from you know a family that hasn't done really well to being mm. a, a rebel and starting your own radio stations to taking a company public through endemol to now starting start bootcamp um and your various arms to start bootcamp even helping people upskill whatnot simple question how do you feel about all, all this when you when you take a step back and you reflect well you know um m most of my ambitions have been filled and i just feel very very privileged that i've been uh, able to do what i did i mean i i could lay on the beach uh, of a very nice <laughs> sunny tropical country for the rest of my life but uh, i'm here and today i'm meeting you so tonight when i call my wife on the phone i say hey i, I met jason I did a very nice talk with him a podcast interview with him if you work if you create things if you're able to well to help people uh create a better life i mean that's so fulfilling i know a number of people who are very wealthy and don't do anything anymore and to be very honest they're not the nicest people i know you know they they start uh, uh, having uh, white wine lunches and they end the night with lots of wine and that th and the only thing they do is complain but if you build a company you automatically meet new people who inspire you who give you new ideas and you know you you may go to the gym a few times a week to keep your body in shape. I am here, and because I do things like like we're now doing uh, in in the podcast, I keep my mind sharp and focused, and it's just it's just incredible. And I I I really love what I'm doing. I hope to do this for many many years until, as I mentioned earlier in the program, um, people tell me, hey, it's time to move on. Uh, but you know, I got a couple of ideas i mean the state of tech uh, you just mentioned we could build a company out of that you know there's so much data that we have so uh, i would love to start a business intelligence uh, division to start a boot camp and to interleaves but if that's not possible you know i can do it outside so uh, uh, to a certain extent I, I would actually really enjoy something hey Ruth, your your time has come it's time to to move out and i'll just move on to the next uh, project but at the same time um I really would like to uh, to build this company in, into a, an even uh, more global uh, operator. And Jason, the best way to predict the future is to create it yourself. That's and that's what I'm doing. That's amazing. Uh, thank you, Ruth, for being on the podcast. Can't wait to see what you get up to next. And uh, it's been amazing chatting with you. Thank My you. pleasure. My Thanks pleasure. so much. Thank you very much for having me.